Okay, I think we'll go ahead and get started. Um, <clears throat> there's still people wandering around, but <clears throat> we'll go ahead and start with prayer, and then I'll try to outline how far we hope to get tonight. Father in heaven, we thank you for being with us through the day. We thank you for being present in just in everything that we were called upon today to do. We thank you that you are always strengthening and enabling every one of us. And we thank you for it. Thank you for bringing us here tonight. We pray you'd bless our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. <clears throat> um, we kind of got through the colonial up... Um, really up close to the Revolutionary War as far as what was going on with churches. Mostly we looked at each of the 13 colonies, what were the predominant religions or denominations um, then. And <clears throat> what I want to look at now, we'll start tonight, is post-Revolutionary War um, till about, say, 1835 or 1840, okay? A huge amount of things happened during that roughly 50 years, okay? Um, <clears throat> probably the first place we'll start is um, what we could call denominational mayhem, okay? Um, virtually all of the denominations in the United States then had their headquarters, their source, their mother church, if you want to call it, mother denomination in Europe. And in many cases, depending on their form of government and the ordination requirements and things like that, um, they, depended on, they depended on the European or English, wherever they were at, um, headquarters to ordain ministers, start churches, Presbyterians ordain a synod, um, whatever government was. And then, of course, that was difficult and impractical because of the distance and, and you know, shipping, however long it took to travel. But once things, once America cut loose from England, <clears throat> now these groups were faced with becoming um, organized within America. Now, the ones that um, affected most drastically, first would be uh, the Anglicans, Church of England, okay? Church of England, of course, part of being a, a member of the Church of England, especially if you were a clergyman in the Church of England, you had to, to be ordained. Part of it was swearing allegiance to the king as the supreme head of the church, okay? Well, the American Constitution, so you, you were not allowed to swear allegiance to any for, uh, foreign um, king or whatever. Um, so suddenly you have most 
with the Anglicans, you have almost all the clergymen fled during the Revolutionary War, went back to England. So the, the churches of England, Anglican churches throughout America, had very few pastors. They couldn't get any more because they weren't going to send them from England. And so the Anglican church was hurt badly um, in, in the breakup um, of the colony from, or the colonies from England. Um, <clears throat> they ended up, and plus, the Anglican ministers were to a man, hardcore anti-revolutionary war. So they also got um, a bad reputation. So they weren't liked. They were cut loose from their source of authority, ordination, and everything else. And so um, they ended up uh, losing lots and lots of people, uh, of their membership. They, they, they sank down a long way. They ended up finally um, reorganizing into what they called then the Protestant Episcopal Church. And... Um, they're still a part of global Anglicanism, but they, they are a standalone church in America from the Revolutionary War. And, of course, today they just go by the, the word Episcopal. Okay? They, use the, they, they use the Anglican Book of Common Prayer and so forth, but they do their own ordaining. They have their own um, government here um, and so forth. A second group that was affected by this, uh, by the Revolutionary War, and an odd way, was the Methodists. Now, the Methodists were not a separate denomination, even in England. They were a part of the Anglican Church. Wesley refused to ever leave the uh, Church of England, and they were but what was called a society, but a part of the Church of England. So the Methodists um, didn't have quite the connection to the Church of England that the Episcopals would have had, because the Methodists were looked upon by the Church of England as weirdos. I mean, they were a wacky, kind of a wacky bunch to them. Um, they put up with them, um, but even to the end, even to the death of Wesley, um, when Wesley died after almost 60 years of preaching um, and being known all over England and transplanting Methodism over here, even though he had grown in popularity and people began to accept him and felt like he was not what they thought he was when things first started out, every single Church of England church in London was closed to Wesley except for one. So even after the impact he had on that uh, long a time, he was still pretty much an outcast. Okay, So if you're in America... You're a kind of a oddball connection to the Anglican Church, and the Anglicans now have have to go independent. 
what do the Methodists do? Well, this was the opportunity, and really they, they had no other choice. They had to become their own denomination. So that's what they did here. Um, in 1784, they, um, the surrender of you know, Cornwallis was 83 or, well, it was earlier than that, but then they, the treaty. Anyway, 1784, um, in, I think it was in Baltimore, um, they had an organizing meeting and they became um, the Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States. Okay, the word Episcopal merely meant um, the form of government, minister-led. Okay, um, now, actually for the Methodists, it cut them loose. Um, they were on their own, they could do what they want, um, they could organize the way they wanted, and they imported to America the, the special kind of technique that they had in England of circuits, where they didn't have enough preachers, never could have enough preachers, but every little village where they would go and just preach in the town square and some people would get converted or be, they would call them um, seekers. Um, they would organize them into, they called them classes. And they would be 10 to 12 people and they had a class leader and they would meet through the week. Wesley wouldn't let any of the Methodists ever schedule meetings during the time that the Church of England services were held, because he wasn't ever going to compete. He was Church of England, and he loved the Church of England, so he refused to compete. He always then said, you meet with your classes, you pray together, you do all these things, um, but you don't ever compete with stated services of the Church of England, okay? Um, so in 1784, they organized, and Wesley finally, by then, he bowed to the, the inevitable and caused a scandal by ordaining people, two guys in England, sending them over here to America on a ship to then ordain Methodist preachers over here, okay? Now, that 90% of what went on back then as far as some of the things they fought over, some of the things they thought were huge deals, we don't even think about it, okay? Um, that's not all good, okay? Um, but the only people that were allowed in the Church of England, of course in the Roman Catholic Church, were um, bishops, and it, the assumption, the belief, the doctrine behind that was that every bishop, at least in the Catholic Church, the Catholics then, of course, denied this to any Protestant church, but the Catholic belief, which a number of Protestant churches adopted, was uh, apostolic succession. Now, I think I've mentioned that to you guys before. Um, theoretically, the bishop that ordains me and the bishop that ordained him and ordained him and ordained him, you can trace it back to the original 12, okay? Now, I don't know about that. Um, 
And I don't know how in the world you'd prove it. But the point being, you step out of that apostolic succession, and it's a bogus ordination. You're not really ordained. So you then should never be, you, you can't give communion, you can't administer the sacraments, you can't baptize someone, you shouldn't marry people, whatever, because you're not authentically ordained. Okay? Um, so Wesley created quite a, his, his argument though was, okay, I was ordained in the Anglican church. The Anglicans believe in apostolic succession, so that must mean that I, can, I am in the, the line of apostolic succession. So if I was ordained, going clear back to the apostles, I can ordain somebody. Um, he did it reluctantly because very into, he was very loyal to the Church of England, so but he realized that um, the Methodists over here would not be able to offer communion to um, the Methodist preachers, couldn't offer communion to the Methodist lay people without ordination. Okay, that's another whole subject. Um, Now, I, I'm a bit of a traditionalist there. I don't think that you will drop immediately into the flames um, if someone who's not fully ordained gives communion to somebody. But, you know, you might get your feet scorched a little bit. Uh, I think, you know, if you go to the, if you go to the institution of the sacrament of communion, um, on the Thursday before the night of the Last Supper, he authorized the disciples, the apostles, to administer those, that sacrament and the sacrament of baptism. So I'm a little, um, I kind of like to stick to the historical tradition that the ordained ministry baptizes, um, administers the sacraments, so forth. Now, um, I don't know that that, you know, is a, I would have to say that is not a heaven or hell issue, okay? Except I, it's, <laughs> I don't like it. Um, I just think there's, frankly, I think there can be a, Less, uh, a less reverential approach to the sacraments. And there's, um, I mean, you have some kind of, um, you know, pool party in the backyard and then you have communion. With, I don't like that. Or, you know, come on over and we'll baptize you in the pool. I think it's a sacrament and I think um, I'm not trying to... Um, appeal for my um, what employment security <laughs> um, but I just don't think uh, I think we need to keep some traditions alive okay but anyway um, so the wide beliefs of that day of course were that you a non-ordained minister a preacher could not administer sacraments. So all of the Methodists here in America that were converted would either have to go to the Anglican church if they'd allow them or some other church 
um, that they were kind of in fellowship with where, that, where an ordained minister could administer sacraments to them. Otherwise, if they stuck with the Methodists, they didn't have anybody that was ordained. So that was a big decision, big argument. Um, that, but they were cut loose and organized as a denomination here in America. Um, Dutch Reformed was another group that were still tied to the Netherlands and Holland, um, and their official officialness came from there. And of course, when that when the revolution uh, took place, then they were cut um, cut free, had to reorganize, so forth. Um, Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, who were a lot alike, as far as basic beliefs, doctrines, and so forth, same thing. They, they were no longer tied to anybody um, back in the old country. Um, and so that for a long time, the Presbyterians and Congregationalists even thought about merging and cooperate a lot with each other. But by the early, by the 1820s, somewhere in there, that would be now 30 years, after, 40 years after the war, um, they were um, drifting apart because the Congregationalists were doctrinally fighting internally. They had three groups. One, they had what they called um, the, what was the term? They called them the, um, the standard or the, they really meant old time, but the standard authentic Calvinists. They were followers of Jonathan Edwards. Um, who was a, a, a high Calvinist reformed theology. Then there was a group that were uh, less stringent on the doctrine of predestination and all that stuff, but they were anti-revivalist. I'll get into that in a second. There were lots of revivals, um, and I'll explain that, but we'll just leave that. That group was, um, not into the freer forms of worship and so forth. Then you had a liberal wing of the Congregationalists that were the Harvard people. Um, Congregationalists, Puritans, started um, Harvard in 1836. Well, now here you're, Harvard itself is um, pushing 70 years old. 70, 80 years. They're, they're third generation or teachers. They're already falling apart. They're going, if they're not deists, um, they were very, they were rationalists, um, that your mind is where you get truth. It's not revealed. So they began to discredit scripture. Um, man is capable of thinking his way to truth. We don't need revelation from outside. And so Clear back in the late 1700s, Harvard was a mess, okay? Um, anyway, <clears throat> so um, then you have, um, well, let's move to the Baptists. The Baptists broke away from the Congregationalists and the Presbyterians in many cases um, because the Presbyterians and Congregationalists believed in infant baptism, and the Baptists didn't. The Baptists believed in believer baptism, adult baptism. You are, 
you are a worthy candidate to be baptized when you can point to a conversion experience that you have had and then you can be baptized, okay? Now, um, that separated them from uh, some of the groups that they'd participated with earlier. They grew rapidly, so that by the Baptists grew pretty rapidly after the Revolutionary War <coughs> until, <coughs> excuse me, 1800. In the year 1800, they were the biggest denomination in the United States. Um, a reason for that growth, I think, was because they were, since they believed in believer baptism, they were all about making converts. They were evangelistic. Well, that keeps you alive, and it keeps you um, doing what, going into all the world to preach the gospel, um, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That will help keep fresh and uh, active and energized, okay? Um, so the Baptists were um, actually doing quite well um, after the Revolutionary War. They were independent over here before the Revolutionary War, so there was another thing that helped them. It wasn't that big of a ruckus that the, the Revolution happened. They were on their own anyway. Um, they were independent. Um, one last thing here, two groups, that, two groups that were doing pretty good but really suffered um, for a variety of reasons um, after the Revolutionary War were the Quakers and the Catholics. Um, the Catholics kind of shrunk to where their only colony that had ever been settled for Catholics in the first place, which was Maryland. Um, they still had, you know, an enclave there. Um, Quakers were kind of, well, Pennsylvania, uh, but they were even getting outnumbered in Pennsylvania. Um, <clears throat> now, any, any questions so far? Anything not, that's a lot of, I don't know how important all of it is, but um, the, let me just touch on the general state of religion, okay? Um, in 1800, one out of 15 citizens were connected to some church, okay? Um, by 1835, in just 35 years, one out of eight were connected to a church. That is a doubling um, in 35 years. The goal that it's hard for us to understand, but with all the different denominations, regardless of their different doctrines and government and all that, they, they all had almost a given, assumed, hardly spoke of it, but everyone believed it. Their job as churches was to make America a Christian country. That was the aim. And they all believed, what I mentioned last week, the, um, well, it, it came to be labeled, one label was manifest destiny. The idea that, I mean, this country was planted by God. He raised it up, and they were to uh, make this a modern-day Israel, 
you know, the people of God, the country of God. Um, and they did their best to do that. Early on, even after the Revolutionary War, there were three states, Connecticut, New Hampshire, and Massachusetts, that all had the Congregationalists as their state church. Um, it wasn't until then the Constitution was adopted where there was no state sponsoring of religion that that stopped. Um, so in some of those states, and even if it wasn't official, there was such pressure, um, peer pressure even, from the governments. You get to church. Um, you're an, well, one of the worst things you could be was be labeled a, an infidel. No faith. Um, the basic belief, and it's not a false one. We could use a refresher course in it today, okay? The basic belief, how can I put this? Not to say that, there, surely there were people that were in churches and people who believed you ought to go to church who believed in it for peripheral reasons. Um, maybe not merely the love of God, but they all saw it as a glue that, that held together the culture and the society and elevated the nation. Um, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Sin is a reproach unto any, any people, but righteousness exalts a nation. That, those are some of their very favorite verses that they used. So they believed um, that if nothing else, just if you are educated and um, trained in the Christian doctrines, even if you weren't a converted Christian, but you knew it, it would be a moral um, scaffold that would keep society um, from descending into barbarism. We have, we have as a 200 and how many ever years later, we are being quite successful in getting rid of God, okay? And what do we have? We think of God, Psalm 2, refers to God's laws, his commandments, as that the world looks at them as chains, handcuffs, hindrances, to ruin everything. Well, you know, people don't tell me what to do. Okay, the other guy doesn't get told what to do either. And when we lose God, we lose mercy, tolerance, forgiveness, kindness, second, third, fourth chances in life, it's gone. And what we have today are, are just savages. And there's not a shred, hardly, of decency. Um, it's, it's, it's just appalling, the stuff people are doing. Now, um, one of the things, this is not off the subject, but... Um, one of the things that this produced, this belief 
that religion, if nothing else, was good for society. Um, it's in the fabric of our founding and the fabric of all of our documents. Um, the Constitution, if the, the way the Constitution is set up and the way that the um, separation of powers, here's one thing that, that they made no bones about, the founders made no bones about, and this many years later we can look at it and we can still see um, their fundamental belief, okay? Their fundamental belief was based on old-time kind of dark Puritanism, true nevertheless, that as the founder said, men are not angels. Okay? The fundamental belief that human beings are depraved, have a sinful bent in their hearts, the founders totally believed it. The very reason they set the separation of powers up was in one sense, and I th if I can make this clear, in one way, they were looking to thwart that inclination in the human heart, but they also were looking to use it. They knew that man was fundamentally selfish. Okay? So they knew if we pit three um, powers against each other, they will fight for their own turf enough that they'll stay separate. So they, they counted on depravity, in a sense, to keep the powers separated. And in keeping them separated, then their theory was um, you will never have too much power um, you know, accruing in a certain branch of government that will then dominate over the other two. So, in that sense, it was thoroughly, the founding is thoroughly Christian that the heart is deceitful above all things, as Jeremiah said, desperately wicked, and who can know it? Who can ever plumb the depths of it? Um, and when we pull off the restraints on that, what we see every day in the news is what, what you get. So, um, <clears throat> the belief then of the churches was we're here to turn this into a Christian nation. Um, now, let me kind of pay attention where we're at here. Um, <clears throat> As soon as the Revolutionary War was over, well, to some degree even before it, but as soon as the Revolutionary War was over um, and things began somewhat to settle and the population along the Atlantic seaboard recognized the massive size of forget the Louisiana Purchase, just from, from the seaboard to the Mississippi, the massive size of the United States, they began to realize this is, 
you know, this is so far bigger than all the countries we emigrated from in Europe. There's just, you know, they were just eyes glazed over. You have the westward push start. Um, they began to, of course, go over the Appalachians. Um, and it was, it was early on, even in Francis Asbury, the Methodist bishop or Methodist superintendent that Wesley sent over here, sent him over here in 1771, um, preached for four or five years. Then, because he was a Methodist, connected with the Anglicans, he had to go into hiding. Asbury basically went into hiding and got off the circuit of preaching through the Revolutionary War. And then, you know, came out of the woods in Georgia or someplace where he just laid low because there was real sentiment against, you know, anything English. Um, but he, in, in his, in the 1790s, he died in 1816. But in the late 1790s, you have him going to Chillicothe, Ohio, what's today Columbus, Ohio, Washington Courthouse, Ohio, um, and he, he preached in Tennessee, preached all through Kentucky. Um, and the, why? Because there was just, um, a couple of historians have likened it to almost a stampede of going west and, you know, carving out, um, clearing the land and having a farm and, you know, just a, a little settlements here and there. Um, I think if I remember right, somewhere around this time, you only had about six um, decent-sized cities, and they were just in the low tens of thousands, New York, Philadelphia, um, wherever. Um, so there was a tremendous westward push. Pretty much... They quit at the, at the Mississippi. You still didn't have until Jefferson bought Louisiana purchase. You don't have anything beyond that. And they kind of recognized, looked at the Mississippi, or um, yeah, the Mississippi as a big enough barrier. They didn't go much um, beyond it. But um, he, let, me, let me, though, um, read something here that gives us... Um, it kind of surprised me to find out how early, even though I lived back in Indiana for a while, um, <clears throat> here's how quickly um, this westward, remember you're, you're looking at 1776 to about 1783 total for the Revolutionary War, okay? Um, Kentucky was admitted as a state in 1792. They had enough population, uh, and I think 50,000 was the number to qualify. Tennessee came in in 1796, Ohio in 1803, Louisiana 1812, Indiana 1816, Alabama 1817, Illinois, which is you know further than Indiana, 1818, um, Mississippi 1819, and 1821, the Mississippi had, no, had ceased to be that big of a barrier that Missouri came in. So it was really rapid uh, westward movement. Now, 
how did the churches respond to that? Well, some of them didn't respond very well, um, especially those that were less evangelistic. There were mainly three groups that followed the westward movement um, to minister to the souls of the people that were um, moving west. Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians, okay? Um, now, just to throw this in, the Presbyterians have always been a little bit, um, I can't figure them out, because um, the history of Presbyterianism, and even at that time, the Presbyterians believed in election, predestination. God chose um, you know, one out of us here to be saved and all the rest of us, he did not choose us to be saved. Well, if Phil McMahill is the only person here say, or elected before the foundation of the world or at least um, the fall, why am I going to follow all of you guys and try to win you, win you to Jesus if you're not chosen? Okay, well, one, I don't know that. Okay, I don't know that Dick Bradford is a hopeless case. I mean, you know, he's a goner. Um, I don't know that. Nor do I know that Phil is elected. Okay, so that's one of their arguments. Well, we don't know who's elected and who isn't. So we're obligated to try to preach the gospel to everybody, and God will take care of who's chosen to be saved and who isn't. Okay, um, but I still, but, but, to me, not remotely believing in that, if Phil is saved, if, if Phil's elected to be saved, God will save him. I don't have to go tell him. I mean, God will figure it out. God can appear to him if he wants to. It won't matter. If God has picked someone to be saved, if I preach to him or not, they're going to get saved. And if he's elected others not to be saved, no point in preaching to them either because it won't do any good. So I, I don't figure, I can't understand why the Presbyterians were kind of joined with in an evangelistic spirit when their doctrine undercuts it. Uh, but nevertheless, um, they, they were missions-minded. Um, they also ministered to the Indians and so forth. But they, th these three groups, Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, um, pushed into the frontier. Um, and this brings about a real shift. There's a new kind of religious culture that springs up by the frontier preaching and reaching these people. Um, most of the people, I mean there's exceptions, um, but many of the people that pushed westward, um, and again, you can't generalize, though this may sound like it, Let's put it this way. If you've got a massive plantation and you're filthy rich and you're living in Virginia, 
you're not going to cross the Appalachians and try to go, you know, hunt around in Kentucky for some place that, you know, for a volleyball-sized place that's flat. You're not going to do that. So who, who went there? Um, often people who were poor, um, maybe had been not successful in getting established um, earlier. Immigrants who um, were always pouring in. Uh, immigrants who, of course, found that along the seaboard and I don't know how many, 50, 60 miles inland, the good land was taken, so forth. So um, there's an incentive there. Let's, let's go over the mountains and, you know, it's wide open once we get over there. Um, those people then, again with exceptions, were not necessarily well-educated now, there was high literacy. Most could read somewhat. Um, but they, they were a different culture. They would be considered a little rough. Um, they lived a, an almost a subsistence kind of life. It's grow enough and hunt enough to eat and you build a shelter and maybe you trapped a little bit or you tried to sell some of your crops or you um, cut timber off your property or whatever but it was a it was really a hard scrabble way of life and it attracted people who had to make that kind of sacrifice in order to scratch out a living, okay? Now, they responded um, more frequently. Well, I'll ask you, the, I'll put it this way. A preacher who stood up in a pulpit with, you know, robes or swallowtail coat or whatever else, and talk to him, um, maybe explain Greek words to him or whatever. I had a theology professor, uh, no, a philosophy professor when I was in college. Um, and <clears throat> he, he was a Methodist. Um, it turns out, um, this was back in Anderson, Indiana, um, and 30 miles away was Taylor University which had been started by the Methodists, clear back in the 1840s. Um, it turns out that this philosophy professor, um, my father had had him in college as his philosophy professor at Taylor University. Um, and he, you know, he was, uh, I don't have time to go into it, he was something else. Um, but at any rate, he was notorious for being, he would serve as pulpit supply in these little country Methodist churches. There, there was a Methodist church in every little village um, all throughout Ohio, Indiana. It's amazing um, how many Methodist churches there are. Um, at any rate, 
So around that area, there was always a little church that either didn't have a pastor or whatever else. And so Dr. Kleiss was his name. He'd go preach. And he would preach 45 minutes to an hour on a Greek word. Now, uh, understand me here. I'm not saying that agricultural people, farmers, which was all of my family, all of my relatives are stupid. Um, but to, to a, a bunch of dairy farmers who got up at four, <laughs> milked who knows how many cows, got cleaned up just in time to pull into the gravel parking lot at the little Methodist church in the corner of the cornfield, don't want to hear a one-hour sermon on a Greek word, okay? The frontier people weren't interested in that. The kind of preachers then that they responded to were, were people that were of their own. And the genius of both the Methodists, the Baptists, and to some degree the Presbyterians was the people that were converted they would put them, as soon as they could get them a little bit of education, they'd put them right back into work in the community or in the, among the people that they knew, okay? Well, they were generally more um, outspoken, blunt, uh, straightforward, loud. They didn't have sound systems. And, you know, it, it was the typical, um, you know, layout. Hellfire, damnation, you're going there, you know. Um, that began, that had an effect in those frontier western settlements. And huge um, revivals broke out. People who were just confronted with plain unvarnished you know you're doing this, you know you're doing that, you keep doing that, you're going to go to hell. They responded to it. <clears throat> Out of that, to some degree, came what I mentioned when we quit last week, the second great awakening. First great awakening was in the 1740s, 50s. Second great awakening was right up around 1800 and on for some, for some years, okay? A couple decades. Um, out of that, there came a couple of movements. One, um, we call it the camp meeting movement, okay? Um, how many of you, how many of you have ever been to a well, I guess you, they, we still have them around, a church or a um, camp meeting where you stay, you know, it may just, maybe you stay in a tent, you stay in a little cabin, there's preaching maybe twice a day, um, and so forth. A anybody even know what I'm talking about? You do. Who else might know? Ever been to a camp meeting? Yeah, okay. Well, they, they are probably, let's see, um, probably the first camp meeting was, was in, called Cane Ridge in Kentucky. It was 1798. There's different days. Some, some say, no, it wasn't until 1800. But at any rate, it's right in there. 
Methodist camp meeting. Um, they remember you've got a totally agrarian society. Okay, it's it's all by the seasons, and once planting's done, and back then I don't you know they didn't have two hundred thousand dollar machinery to you know cultivate or whatever. You planted and prayed for rain and sat around and whittled whistles or did something till it grew. Well, during those downtimes agriculturally, the preachers got the idea, let's gather people together, this is a downtime, and we'll just gather in big groves of trees or whatever. Um, and people can bring their wagons, they can pitch tents, they can sleep in their wagon or whatever else, and we'll, every, we'll have big, you know, big cooking areas, um, and we'll just kind of camp out, and we will do nothing but pray and preach, read the Bible, study the Bible, whatever, mostly preaching, okay? Um, and they would usually run a couple weeks long. Um, they would have as many as, um, and, and remember, I, you don't know how well they were counting or whatever, but they would have in excess of, supposedly at this first great big camp meeting in Kentucky, they had over 10,000 people. And here's what they would do. They had so many people that they would take, um, they'd just take a stump or build some real primitive little stand, a couple steps up, kind of a little pulpit, you know, platform, so you could be a little bit of the, above the people. And you'd preach to them, okay? Now, you, it, it wasn't just Methodists or just, you'd have maybe two or three Presbyterians, you'd have, I don't know how many, a couple Baptists, some Methodists, and they would preach all at once. Okay, what they did was they would just get far enough apart from each other so they knew you couldn't hear them, and then they'd preach over there. Um, and the preaching was, you know, um, the flames are licking at your feet. <clears throat> and they, then they called on people to confess their sins right then, ask forgiveness, um, and then they had, after the preaching was done, they had what they, we, we would call, or they did to some degree then, testimonies where people would tell. You know, um, I got converted today. Jesus came into my heart. And I've been doing this and this and this, and I'm quitting. And Joe Schmo, my neighbor over here, I stole a calf from him five years ago, and I'm going to give him back to him, and I'm sorry, and I'm making restitution. Um, that changed the whole fabric of the community. Um, I can go too long on all this, but one of the, one of the there was always in every town, um, a saloon keeper. The Methodist preachers routinely would fist fight 
the Methodist or, or the, the saloon keeper for the right to come into town and preach. Maybe preach from the little, little log courthouse and they'd, they'd always let them preach from the courthouse or the school or something. Um, why would the saloon keeper meet them? Because they knew this guy gets to preaching too much and enough people get saved and swear off the bottle, I'm out of business. Um, I won't get into Peter Cartwright, but he's famous um, as one of the well-known um, Methodist circuit riders in Kentucky and Illinois. Incidentally, later he ran against Abraham Lincoln uh, in Illinois for representative, House of Representatives in the U.S. lost, but um, Peter Cartwright has got just story after story after story, which I'm, I'm certain they're true because I've got quite a few books of other circuit, ride, circuit riding, traveling preachers and the stuff they got into. Um, and they really had to, well, let me give you this one. Um, Bishop William Taylor was a Methodist. That's who they named Taylor University in Indiana after. He preached in the gold rush days in San Francisco. And he routinely, with whatever kind of a crude little raw wood, you know, podium they had, he would lay two six guns up there while in, in plain sight while he preached. So they'd leave him all because they would come in drunk and they, they would try to tip over chairs and they'd hoot and holler and they'd fire through the ceiling of the tent or whatever they were doing. Um, and so it was pretty routine that you had to be a good fighter and maybe pretty good with a six-shooter to be a preacher. Um, I'll just tell you one <laughs> Peter Cartwright story. Um, he was preaching and a, he said some young toughs came in came all the way up to the front, sat down, and he figured there were going to be trouble. Um, and so they started making a ruckus and got up and, you know, whatever. And while he was preaching, he said they were going to beat him up and make him quit. And he says in his journal, um, they started swinging at him, and he said, I noticed, <laughs> he said, I noticed that when he'd swing at me, he left his jaw exposed. So he said, I waited for the second or third swing and says, then I dropped him. <laughs> um, then got, got back up the little stand, started preaching again. One other quick story. <laughs> he sent a preacher because you, you, the su he was a superintendent. You assigned preachers to a circuit. They would be there maybe a quarter, two, three months. Then he'd move them to another place. Um, all these guys were usually single um, and young. Average age of a Methodist preacher was 28. Uh, that, was also, that was also the average age at their death, 28. They drowned, crossing, you know, froze, uh, whatever. Um, but at any rate, he sent a preacher to some place in Kentucky, and they beat him up and ran him out of town. Well, he sent another guy, and they beat him up and ran him out of town. So 
Cartwright said, well, I'm going to have to go down there. So he goes down there, and outside of the, some mile or so from the little settlement in the woods along the path, he, another rider, he comes on another rider. The other rider didn't know who Cartwright was. And so he started telling him about the latest hullabaloo in the little settlement was the Methodist circuit writer, Methodist preacher. Said they sent this Methodist preacher to him and he said, you know, we told him get out of town. He didn't. Within a couple of days, said we beat him up and ran him out of town. Ha, 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 yeah. And Cartwright in his journal, he says, so he said, I, 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 reined, I reined in and I asked him to stop. And he said, um, I asked him to get off his horse. And he got off, Cartwright got off of his. And he, he said, I tied into him. He, he ended up beating him badly enough. Then he picked him up, put him back on his horse, and he said, I'm Peter Cartwright. I'm the guy that sent the last two Methodist preachers to you that you beat up. He said, I'm not even, I don't even have to go into town. The way you look, you go into town and you tell them that you ran into Cartwright and he said, the next preacher I send, you leave him alone. And they did. <laughs> um, that story, though, honestly, is multiplied. The frontier was wild. Um, so, Anyway, it ushered in a new kind of preaching and a new kind of, it, and they, it was called revivalism, um, where it wasn't like Sunday morning preaching. It, even in our day, probably the closest thing we could um, identify with would be back when most of us were a lot younger, and you'd have the Billy Graham Crusades. Those were, that was revivalism. It was not as raw-boned and in-your-face as the frontier preachers. But it was, it was um, in fact, he called his magazine and he called his crusades the hour of decision. The point being you haven't got a whole bunch of time to mull over for the next 10 years whether you're going to become a Christian and straighten up. You could die tonight. You better settle it dur during this service. <laughs> um, then he would invite people to come to the front and so forth. Um, that's really a somewhat um, tamed version of what broke out in after the Revolutionary War and really went all the way through, I would have to say, a good 150 years. All through the 1800s, maybe even longer, well up into the 1970s or whatever. So um, the, that m revivalism um, has a long history here in America and not very much in any other country. It gets exported from here, but this seems to be, um, and seemed to be, where revivalistic preaching was way more prominent than any place around the world. Um, okay, <clears throat> I'll quit there, because there is, um, there's another movement as, 
as those cities or those little settlements where these camp meetings would occur, people from miles around, as things got more settled and more, you know, how homes were built, log cabins were done away with, they finally built a stone courthouse and all, things settled. Um, there was a new movement that didn't really take the place of the camp meetings because those continued on. But it was a new type of revivalism that began to take um, place. And it also lasted, in some places it still goes on. Um, I probably, um, I probably averaged 20 years ago, uh, and up until 20 years ago, I probably averaged two to three revival meetings a year and one camp meeting in the summer. Um, but it's died out. Um, plus, um, it, de it partly depends on the population of the country you're in. Um, back in Indiana, there's you know, there's 15 million churches. Ohio, it, um, it's crazy how many churches there are. Um, and population out here, um, you know, we don't have much of that. There's a, there, there's a camp meeting I know that still meets up in Montana. Um, what's it called? Ridge, Ridge Camp. Um, it's up near past Broadus. Um, and they they meet for about 10 days every summer. Um, interesting place to go. Um, but those are, those are, there are still some of those around. Um, but as a movement, it's, it, it's gone. Um, but been around for a long time. Okay, we got to quit. Um, we'll start in, I'll do a little bit more on the, the, the Great Awakening and some of the major um, evangelists, one of them being, um, uh, what in the world's the matter with me? Um, my brain, I'm tired. Um, who's the great, who's, who's the great evangelist in the early 1800s? Um, he started Oberlin College, which is today godless. Um, Charles G. Finney. Um, anybody heard of Charles G. Finney? Anyway, Finney was major, major evangelist during the, the second great um, awakening. So we'll look at some of those people. And then we're going to start seeing, and we'll touch on this too next week. We've only got three Wednesdays left, right, Lori? Okay, we also have the start during these, this great time of second wave of revival across the United States, we have some cults showing up, which I think were the devil's response to revival. The Mormons started in 1823. Um, they were an early one. And then you have Jehovah's Witness, you have some that came along a little bit later. Um, but during this second great move of the Lord, I believe, the devil started getting some of his work in. So we'll touch at least on some of those. Okay. Father in heaven, thank you for your hand in history. And we're grateful, Lord, 
every one of us here, we could have been born someplace where there worship sticks and stones or whatever. What a privilege it is, Lord, fouled up as our country seems to be still. I'm grateful to live here. And your hand has very clearly been on this country. And we thank you for that and pray that somehow you would bring us back to where we belong. Go with us, we pray tonight. Keep, keep us safe in Jesus' name. Amen.